Hello, my name is Janice B. Gordon. This is Scale Your Sales Podcast. Welcome to the Scale Your Sales Podcast, listed number nine of 42 best podcasts for every sales professional in 2021. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert, recommended by LinkedIn as one of 15 innovative sales influencers to follow in 2021. Hello and welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, Barbara Windsor-Smith. I've been dying to get you on this podcast for a long time. We've got so much to discuss. So welcome. Thank you, Janice. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. Well, uh, the first thing I really want to delve into, because you've got such an interesting background and wealth of experience, is how can CEOs of smaller sales operations really land and compete with larger operations to land those larger deals? This is your area of expertise. Absolutely. Great. So, So how does that happen? Well, there are a lot of moving parts, of course, but fundamentally, there's two main things. The smaller companies need to learn how different it is to sell to large corporations than to companies that are like themselves. Mm -hmm. So large corporations have many more rules. They have different and higher expectations. And so there's a lot to learn. Uh, Besides that, there's a great deal more preparation that you need to do. You need to really approach it as a team, not as a solo salesperson, and um, get a process in place that's designed to go after large accounts. I think really small companies have an advantage if they learn how to use it. They have the advantage that they can put the people in front of the prospect who are actually going to do the work. And big companies usually send a capture team in to sell the business and then different people do it. So small companies have the advantage of giving more control to the customer. They're more agile, they move faster they can, um, you know, maneuver more easily than big companies. But you have to get after a lot of fear, get over a lot of fear factors uh, before they're going to say yes to you. I find this really interesting, Barbara, and I want to delve into this, if you don't mind, because, you know, CEO listening to this call think, hang on a moment, we've got an advantage. How does that work? So... Mm -hmm. There's one aspect that you talked about getting over the fear, and the other is about uh, allowing more people in the organization to work as a team. So how does the CEO allow that to happen when much of their mindset and mentality probably comes from a big company environment? Yeah. Well, I think the CEO and the senior leadership team have to make up their mind that this is the way they want to scale or one of the ways that they want to scale. It's not the only way, but it's a very good way, especially for companies that have a big sale, a complex sale. You know, they're doing large 
kinds of deals that are hard to do, much harder to do with big companies. And you've got 10 to 12 people that are influencing the buying decision. So first of all, the CEO has to lead this with the executive team and everybody has to be on board that they want to put together a process that allows their subject matter experts to participate in customer facing conversations prior to a sale. And so if there isn't this agreement to start collaborating, it all falls down because the sales leader needs a, an engineer, they need a product person, they need a customer service person to meet with their counterpart at a big company. And if, if the management of that silo in the company, you know, doesn't want to do that, it all falls apart. And then the sales team, the sales leaders need to learn to be leaders, orchestrators of a little um, team of people uh, showing them how to participate, teaching them how to participate. And also when they're in conversations, leading the dialogue and kind of matching people back and forth, who's going to talk about what. So that's a very different sales dynamic, isn't it? If Absolutely. you have, you know, your small company, you have a sales team, they work as a tight unit and their mm -hmm. focus is to sell. Now right. you're talking about the sales operation, including everybody that needs to be around the table to land that deal. So they're having to open up their silo to right. other people coming in to understand that process. That must be quite a a difficult task when you have a product person that says, you know, hang on, I've got my own remit here. You're the one that's supposed to be selling. Why am I getting involved in this? I'm the product person. How, yeah. how do you start to break down those barriers and those silos to actually so we, make everyone really focused on that, that big deal, the one deal and their parts that they play in order to land it? We start with the whale hunters story. The reason we call our company the Whale Hunters is it's based on the Inuit whale hunters on the far northwest coast of Alaska, how they used to hunt whales. And it took everyone in their village <laughs> to hunt a whale. And the reason they hunted whales is because if they fished, they could have dinner. And if they had a carib caught a caribou, you know, they could eat for a week. But one whale would feed their whole village for a year. And that's kind of comparable to some of the big deals that I've worked with small companies on, multi-million dollar, multi-year deals that feed their village for a long time. So everyone begins to get into that idea and using some of the Inuit language, and it becomes a little easier to manage the change aspect. It is a transformation. There's no question about that. So we've done a lot of work on, uh, you know, how to make that easier and how to make that work. So it starts with everybody understanding they have a role in sales. We we eat because we hunt, you know. So <laughs> there's nobody in the companies that, that's not affected by revenue generated by a sales process. And actually, when they start getting into it and doing a lot of activities collaboratively, they learn a lot and get quite excited about it. Yeah, yeah. So I know that you've got an example of construction company where you landed a three million 
uh, help them to land a three million contract. Three hundred million. Three hundred million. Three hundred million. million. Well, three hundred million. How did that happen? Well, we had been working with this company for quite a few months. Uh, they're a, a good sized small company um, heading towards a billion knot. They're privately held. Uh, they they do a lot of high end construction, but they had never done any big resort business. And they were bidding on this resort and going up against a national company. They're a local company going up against a national company that had a real portfolio a very highly visible resort construction that they had done. And so we helped them figure out a plan instead of trying to go head to head on experience in building luxury resorts, we helped them take the tack of mitigating risk. So we put all the risks that were involved, like in building on the beachfront and stuff like that, they positioned themselves as really critically knowledgeable about and experienced in mitigating those risks. And that's how they won against a different kind of competition. So how did you um, come up with the risk mitigation? Why was it that that uh, uh, distinguished this this company? There must have been a whole host of different aspects that they could have bid on, they could have led on. What yes, actually to decide on that, that aspect in this scenario? We thought that that was not only the best way, but maybe the only way they could win. They couldn't win going head to head on, you know, we've done this or we've done that. And they've done many things that are like that, but they haven't done that. And and this is true. Small companies have to do this all the time. They're in a new industry and, and the, the, um, prospect is afraid of them because you don't know my industry or, you know, they're in a new setting, a new context that they haven't worked before. And so you have to be very creative about how you're going to compete against that level of competition. So one of the ways you can compete is by presenting yourself as more flexible. But another way you can compete is to go straight at the fears that people have about this project. So construction, we're in a horrible time of um, supply chain. Prices are going up every day on construction materials. They were building on the beach. So there's all kinds of rules and all kinds of risks in the choice of material. There's risks these days. And can you get enough people to work on the project? So all those kinds of things. We really worked out what the risks were. We built the the experience in mitigating those risks into everybody's bio. I mean, every place in that proposal, because it was an RP actually, every place in that proposal response that we could deal with mitigating risk, that's what we did. Wow, and it landed a 300 million uh, deal. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's an interesting point that um, 
in when you're in a bidding situation when there's a lots of choice actually there's there's and you know there are others that have more advantages than you there's no point meeting them head on because you're never going to win that argument are you right. they're always right. bigger and better and more and they can throw more money right. at it so you know you need to be very strategic in what you can do better and as you say they can often Absolutely. offer more flexibility or you know be brave enough there must be a lot of courage to be brave enough to actually absolutely because yeah. think of what it costs to develop a bid proposal like that yeah. i mean it, it takes a huge amount of time and effort and commitment and um every single element of it has to be just first rate so that that's an illustration of this whole process of moving up market <laughs> into bigger companies everything about it changes including the nature of your competition. <laughs> so it's not just you moving up market uh, to bigger companies. They are surrounded by, you know, competitors that are also more like them than they are like you. Yeah. So strategy is critical. Process is critical. Um, and I would imagine understanding. leadership is critical because Absolutely. I would imagine there's a lot of naysayers. This mm -hmm. is going against everything that they know. Why mm -hmm. are we exposing the fears? Why mm -hmm. are we doing, you know, you can imagine even internally, there's a lot of people that don't really believe in that as a plan. Yeah. So you've got to have very strong leadership to make the decision that this is the way you're going and everyone's got to kind of be aligned to that. Right. That's yeah. the only way it works. Um, yeah. We always start with the um, CEO and um, often the sales VP is a big champion, but not always. Sometimes uh, the sales leader feels that they have the most to lose in this. <laughs> I mean, they really don't they have the most to win, but you know how people are. They're, they're frightened of change and uh, exposure, risk. So you must have uh, come up against quite a few sales leaders that know their sales process and methodology and metrics and KPIs and inside out. Mm -hmm. But then when you're presenting something new to them, there's going to be a lot of resistance. So, mm -hmm. and they could be, it's ideal if they're the champion, but they could be the real block because this is sales it's still sales right. but yeah. actually if you haven't got them on board when you're trying to implement a change management process in order to win bigger deals how do you approach that because the ceo is going to have to approach that within organizations that's right well our methodology is once the ceo and most of the leadership team are on board with bringing us in we work with the cross-functional group in the company if it's a small company, we might include everyone in the company, like 50 people might be involved in these opening workshops. And they do collaborative projects that are part of their work. Like they build a target filter. Um, what are the metrics that define an ideal large whale for us? They're all mixed up. They're not in their little groups. They're all mixed up together around tables we work for two days typically maybe three days and so they begin to if they have any willingness to participate you know they begin to get a sense everybody knows different parts of this process 
and they understand more about what people can contribute who have never been part of this before. Uh, your customer service people know a lot about your customers that the sales team doesn't know, and your training people know it, and your legal team know things that you need to understand when you're going after bigger business. So actually, it's very fun. It, very seldom do we get any kind of serious pushback once we've gone in. If if the CEO isn't up for it, then they're not going to bring us in or we're going to just say, no, thank you. You know, it has to be a CEO who's really willing to try and enthusiastic and um, willing to stay with it over a year's time or two years time, you know, mm -hmm. to really get it yeah. going because, you know, they might have an 18 month sales cycle or a 12 month, you know, very long sales cycles that are hard to shorten because they're doing really complex deals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing that um, the Scale Your Sales framework um, works with is creating customer-centric organizations, customer-centric sales or organizations, really thinking rather than with the sales process, which is often very internally focused, but thinking about the buyer's process, the buyer's journey, the buyer's experience. So what do you think it means for a CEO to lead or to become a customer-centric sales operation? That's a great question, and it's a really a difficult one to get through to people if they're not used to thinking like that. There's a part of the whale hunter story that really speaks to that, that we build on a lot. The Inuit people, after they landed a whale and after they harvested the whale, they had the, the process of the same little boat that brought the whale and they never touched the whale's head when they were harvesting it. The same boat and the same people would take that whale's head back out into the Bering Sea and allow it to sink because they believed the whale was being reborn every year. So we use that notion of your customers being reborn as a consequence of working with you. And so the Inuit people loved the whales. They revered the whales. You know, it wasn't like they were, it wasn't like they were damaging the whales. It was they believed they were part of a system that enabled this to happen and wanted it to happen. And so it's very different than uh, thinking about a whale as something you take advantage of. But in this case, a whale is, is something that you love and honor. And so that's kind of the beginning of how you think like they think. Mm. And also, unless you learn to do things their way, you can't be successful with large companies. You simply can't. It doesn't work. So uh, that's that's kind of the beginning of it. And then all the activities we do are kind of built around that concept. How do they how do they like to buy? How do they like to do things? What do they expect? And what are they afraid of? How can we make them not afraid? It's all very, very focused on the customer. It's not focused really on us. 
I think it's really interesting you think of, you know, the Inuit people in their very small boats and this mm -hmm. huge whale that once they're, they're scouted and they're hunted and land, they've got to drag them in. That whale can yeah. drag them down and kill them all. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so, and, yeah. Yeah. And the reason they risk it is because the reward is so high. Yeah. But since it's so risky, that's why you have to have preparation and process, which the Inuit people had amazing processes for teaching their youth, you know, how to do this, to perpetuate the knowledge. And it was all about, um, it was a very spiritual thing mm -hmm. for them, the world. So it has, we have found that the metaphor uh, has had a lot of value as a change transformation process. So this is making me think about how important um, purpose is and having a real vision within the organization, because mm -hmm. this is really what we're talking about for the in Inuit people, of mm -hmm. how they're able to do this and honor yeah. the whale and honor yeah. the customers. Mm -hmm. And it's very much about, you know, their their DNA, how they're built, their, their purpose, yeah. their, their vision. So okay. how can organizations ensure that that might be a good starting point that the you know when they we're looking at customer centric sales operations customer centric mm -hmm. methodologies cultures right how does that you know how much does the vision and purpose work with that it has everything to do with it so i told you a little bit about how we work with the company but when we have a group together, we start by telling the whale hunter story. How did the Inuit people do it and why did they do it? And the very next activity we do is asking people in the group to identify what are some of the characteristics of the Inuit culture. And then they can pick that right up. And then we match that up and we ask them, so how are you doing in your organization on that aspect of the culture? And we have, we do it red yellow and green, you know, we're good or we're really terrible. So we get great conversations started right away, a little bit of argument, you know, and so they're, they're into it right from the beginning. So it's mostly, it's not lecturing what you have to learn. It's putting activities in front of people so that they learn by doing it. So in choosing the companies that you like to work with, how much do you um, look at the uh, culture, the vision, the purpose of the organization. Do you, is that important to you as to how aligned that is to? Not at the beginning, no. What's important right. to me is that the leadership, especially the CEO, that they will see it through. And if they, if they have a commitment and they're willing to lead, then we know it's going to work. Uh, we only work with B2B companies we mostly work with what I would call meat and potato companies. You know, we do some technology, but a lot of um, manufacturing companies, construction companies, um, drilling companies, you know, <laughs> things like that, that are, um, you know, not the flavor of the month as far as SaaS companies, for example. So um, it's very new for them. Yeah, yeah. Think this way and operate this way, but we don't usually come up with a lot of resistance. Yeah. Okay, so what um, tried and tested strategy would you offer 
listeners here to scale their sales? Well, I think that as we've been talking about, my favorite way for B2B companies to scale is to move up market in the size of the companies they go after. Uh, there are a lot of ways to scale. As you know, you're the expert on scaling, but if you have the kind of product and service mix that larger companies can use, then one large company, one multinational company can give you business for years. You know, they're, they're huge opportunities if you, you're, because you're going to work with one part of the company, right? You're not going to work for the whole thing starting out. So if you, if you get a big deal, one part of the company and it goes well, then you're really positioned to move into other departments, other locations, other countries, you know, uh, there's no limit to what few big company clients can really do to scale the business of a small company yeah. and the, uh, the, re the, the continuing sales to the same customer. That's another whole story that we haven't got into, but that's a big part of it too, of course. Yeah. Of course, of course. So what about in terms of enabling buyers to buy? You, you talked about, um, we talked at the beginning about fear and, yeah. uh, you know, how, you know, internal conflict. And that can be one of the things that stops CEOs, sales leaders from going down. So how do they break through this fear factor? What do they need to do? Well, what we do is help them, first of all, identify what are all the reasons that a big company or this particular big company, what would scare them about you? They're afraid of more work. You don't know the things they do. They're afraid they're going to have to teach you and they don't want to have to do that. They're afraid that they won't agree. That's the internal conflict. So uh, that means you need to get a lot of people on board and you need to help them do that because the, the people that influence a sale typically don't work together and they probably never come together to do a job like, you know, handling sales. So um, there's a lot of uh, fear in that regard. The biggest thing, they're afraid of making a mistake. So if they have something that they want to buy or a problem they want to solve, and they have choices of a small company or another big company, the safest thing for them to do is go with another big company. Because even if it doesn't work out, nobody's going to blame them and say, why did you choose them? So uh, we work on building really tangible sales and marketing collateral that the team can use all through the sales process, the buyer's journey, uh, bring those things up to mitigate those fears ahead of time. A lot of times those are things that people are afraid of, but they're not saying it out loud. You have to just understand it. Uh, and it's human psychology from that standpoint. But if you have things prepared in the formats that big companies find familiar, uh, once they get over some of that fear, they can begin to think about the advantages that you bring, which are immense, really. So that's why I say that small companies have an advantage if you do a good job of overcoming, mitigating, alleviating the fear factors. Yeah, 
Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about perhaps maybe one of your fears. If you were left on a desert island on your own um, <laughs> and you're allowed to take one thing with you, what would that be? It's going to be a laptop with uh, internet, uh, you know, satellite internet connection and long life battery. <laughs> why, why, why the laptop? I feel like connectivity is really very important. And um, most of us in the sales profession are very connected and our, our connections uh, bring great value to us. Our, our peers are people that we collaborate with. Uh, organizations like Women Sales Pros, where we both come from, um, that connectivity is vital. So that's why I would choose my laptop. Yeah, yeah. And I know, you know, you, you, you're you a great writer as well. Not only you, your books, but you continue to, to write for various organizations. So I would imagine that, you know, your laptop's going to be like on, on burning, isn't it? The amount of exactly, time. Yeah, I keep it pretty busy, yeah. I, I know you do, I know you do. Um, well, it's been a great offer, honor. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Um, I've learned a, a great deal. Certainly, there's, I've got so many ideas of things that, that you know, I will be talking to organizations about. And, you know, I love that you and I think very similar in terms of the sales process is really not the starting point, but actually it's the customer that is the starting um, point and really focusing on the buyer's journey and, and the the, the buyer's perspective and mindset and everything like that. So I love that. Thank you so much for being a guest on Scale Your Sales um, podcast, Barbara. Thank you, Janice. It's been my pleasure. Great conversation. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scale Your Sales podcast. If you like this discussion, feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the captioned show on YouTube and subscribe to future episodes. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on iTunes. Thank you.